Welcome to Growing Up 80s, a podcast where two friends talk about things that they like to do in the 80s and still like a lot. That's and not quite right. That's not quite right, but it's kind of what we're doing tonight because it's not, well, I guess it's a thing, but the thing that we're talking about is so much more than a thing. It's more of a, an experience. It's an activity that you participate it's, in. It's a whole world. Yeah, there's lots to it. Hi, Robin. Hi, Darren. I am all butterfielded up tonight, as you notice. Yeah, yeah. You got your, like, smoking jacket on. <laughs> it's a house coat. Ready for some posing. You got your pipe. That's right. Pipe. Don't you, have a pipe. You can lay, lay out on the... Yep. What, what are those called? The, the One of those chaise lounges? Yes. Yes. And be all contemplative. Yes. Contemplative. Contemplative? Yeah. Contemplative. My boys are big into the house coats. They've always, well, I don't know if they've always been into the house coats, but they've been into the house coats for a long time. They like wearing their house coats. I don't remember the last time I've worn a house coat, but I got a house coat for my most recent birthday, and it's cozy, and I like it, and I'm oh, wearing my house coat. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I had a real house coat phase. Mm-hmm. I, I think a significant part of my childhood yeah. and teens involved house coats. Yeah. And maybe even my early married life in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly they were gone. Whatever. Really? What happened to house coats? Well, it's funny that you're talking about it because that's tonight's topic on growing up 80s. Yeah. Growing up house coats. Oh, what a surprise. This is going to be great. We can talk yes. for an hour or two about house well, coats. This is the big episodes that we were talking about that might be like go on for multiple episodes because we've got so much to talk about house coats about. Yes. Is that true? No, it's not. Oh. I think I've exhausted my house coating. Okay. So what are we really talking about, Darren? Tonight we're talking about computer bulletin board systems. BBSs. BBSs. Yes. What? What are the, well, you said it's a bulletin board system. What could it be? Well, back in the day, Robin, before we had this newfangled internet thing, when we wanted to talk via computer to other people, we would often use our modems plugged into our Commodore 64s or whatever type of computer we happen to have, but we had Commodore 64s. And we would use our modems to connect via the telephone lines to other computers. And yeah. somebody would have this computer that would act as a like a host system. And people would call into it and leave messages for each other and read messages and exchange files and play games and do all sorts of things that we do on the internet now. But we used to do on the BBSs on the back BBSs. in the day. On the BBSs. Amazing. Yeah. It's, it's like the future... In the past. Yes. Telecommunications. I write with it. I create with it. I telecommunicate with it. I adore my 64, my Commodore 64. I, th- I think you messed your poem up a little bit there, but... Did I? Yeah. How, but, what, is it, what is it? How's it start? Oh, I don't know. I adore my 64, my Commodore 64. I sing with it, write with it. 
I rate with it, create with it, telecommunicate with it for Commodore 64. Now, for under $250, you can buy a Commodore 64. For complete details, see your authorized Commodore dealer. I adore my 64, my Commodore 64. He rates with it? He writes with it, creates with it. Well, even... I thought he wrote with it in the first verse. In the second verse, maybe he was rating with it. Oh. But I don't know. Yeah. My memory was he writes with it, creates with it, telecommunicates with it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. it's hard to make out. It was one of those songs where you got to fill off syllables in. <laughs> like, yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Got to cram a lot of signal in there. We're off to a great start. This, this is going to be so good. Okay. So what do you think of my definition of a BBS? Yeah, that's... that was pretty adequate? Yeah, that's fine. And what, what's interesting about it is how we didn't go point to point, really. It's not like... Right. When you and I wanted to telecommunicate at each other, mm-hmm. we didn't typically dial each other directly over the that's phone right. lines. Yeah. We, we called a central computer... Mm-hmm. the bulletin board system, and then asynchronously people would dial in. In fact, a lot of BBSs could only handle one caller at a time. Mm-hmm. And so people would sign in and out throughout the day and check in what's happened. How did we learn about BBSs? I feel like for for me, mm-hmm. I hardly even knew what it was, but some neighborhood kid offered to Mm -hmm. sell me a modem for my Commodore 64. I don't even remember who it was, except that I still have the modem. It says on it, strangely in lowercase, 64 modem. It's this black box that looks like an oversized cartridge. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. But it it plugged into the back of my Commodore 64 in the user port, which mm-hmm. is when you're facing the front of the Commodore on the right is the expansion port where you plug mm-hmm. a game cartridge in, but on the left, some people hardly ever used their user port, mm-hmm. but if you had a modem, it would usually sit there. So anyway, some neighborhood yeah. kid was like, you need to buy my 64 modem from me. And so I did. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, now, now what, what do, do I, I do? Yeah. What do I do with this? Yeah. So. That was, that was it. And I found I needed a phone line and something interesting about our city, Thunder Bay, Ontario, Canada, is that we had our own telephone system. Well, I guess, you know, most, most cities ended up for a while, started their own Mm -hmm. telephone system and then eventually got swallowed up by a big company. We still have not, even here in 2021. It's nutty. Thunder Bay Telephone or T-Baytel is still an independent. We are quite the anomaly. Like my cellular service is provided by Thunder Bay Telephone. Yeah. All across Canada. Well, not really all across Canada, like through the partners that they have. But yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's T-Baytel. That's right. They did form a partnership with Rogers 10, 15 years ago. Mm Mm-hmm. Where then, yes, it was it was a, a real problem when your cell phone wouldn't work when you're outside of Thunder Bay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but besides that, anyway, going back to the 80s, the independent nature actually meant that our phone service was really cheap for a oh, while, yeah. owned by the city. 
So I had my own phone line and Darren, you had your own as well. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think our phone bill maybe $7 a month. Yeah. I think when yeah. I first got mine, it might've even been five something a month. Yeah. And six. that's with the telephone rental, right? Yeah. Well, I don't think I rented, well, maybe that's it. Maybe you were renting a telephone from them and I didn't even get a telephone. Well, I had, like I had phones. Like I had my seven up can phone and I would, I liked phones. Like I was, I was buying my own phones, but yeah. this is a, a, a thing to talk about some other time. Yeah. What it meant is that you and I could have our own phone line, independent phone yep. line in our room that then we could use with our modems and not be disturbing anybody. That's right. Not tying up mom and dad's phone line or anything. Yeah. Now I think our friend, friends, Ron and Mark. Mm -hmm. they did tie up the family line. That's right. With that. And I'm sure lots of our listeners probably, if they were using their modem during that time in the 80s and then into the 90s, they might not have had their own phone line. It's funny that you, I, I, I'm glad that you described the modem that you had because I forgot about like the black modem. I was assuming that you had the same kind of form factor modem that I had but you didn't. I had, I had the 1200 baud, um, Commodore modem and it had that nice sleek. It kind of had the same styling as the, as the Commodore 64 C, you know, it was that nice light beige with the, the horizontal, uh, indented stripes, kind of 128 looking Amiga looking kind of stylings going on that yeah. plugged into mine that very, very modern, futuristic looking. Yeah, I, I did get one of those later, but we're going to talk about that in the next part After. more. Yes, that's the, right. The main reason I brought it up is that I really don't remember anything about BBSs until I already had a modem. Right. And then I was trying to figure out, what do I do with this thing? What do I do with this thing? That's right. <laughs> now, I seem to recall knowing it about BBSs. And I was looking into this. It wasn't, at first I thought, oh, it was that Clifford Stoll book, The Cuckoo's Egg, um, where he was talking about how he foiled like this international spy ring that was coming in through um, like the university computers that uh, he was administrating. But that actually probably happened. That book probably came out later on in the 80s um, after we were into BBSing. So maybe there's some other books that I was reading or maybe, you know, just, you know, the, all the various Matthew Broderick movies where Matthew Broderick was, you know, using his computer and his modem to, you know, hack into computers at school or <laughs> the military and stuff like that. Maybe that kind of was on my radar. It's like, oh yeah, I can, I can use my modem to talk to other computers and maybe I learned that there's these things called BBSs. And it's like, oh, that's something I would like to do too. Now, when you see multiple Matthew Broderick... Are yeah, we just, maybe just the two. Well, even War just, Games and Ferris Bueller. Well, did he actually dial in in Ferris Bueller? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I presume he did. Well, Because he, he was changing his grades. I thought he was changing his grades in War Games. Oh, he's definitely changing his grades in Ferris Bueller too. Because Rooney is on the phone with his mom and he's talking about his absenteeism. He's saying he's been absent. No, he's been absent from school nine times, nine times. And he looks at the screen and the number changes from nine to eight to seven. Yes, of course. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Yes. 
Yeah, so he was changing his absences. I in... think he, he talks about changing his grades too. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, yeah, in War Games, he changed his grades. What other movies was Matthew Broderick in? And did he change his grades and dial into computers with his <laughs> modem in those movies as well? Well, did he do it in 1918? I don't think so. No, probably not. What What is Lady Hawk about? Oh, I think that uh, she was a lady who was also a hawk. And either she was like a convertible race car or she was in a like fantasy setting with knights and dragons. I think that's what it was. Yeah, there's dungeons and... Yeah, no Ferraris. No Ferraris, no modems. <laughs> Family business. He was Adam. Well, it's about a high-tech company's lab. I don't think I ever saw Family Business from 1989. I can almost guarantee that he was hacking into a computer using his modem. Yeah, so that'd be, make it like the trilogy of Matthew Broderick computer hacking movies. That's right. Now, there's another big influence. There's this magazine. Our friend Kay brought this magazine, Spin Magazine, into school one day. And Spin is like a, you know, culture music type magazine, right? Yeah. I didn't read it, but Kay brought it to school at lunch. There was an article in it about BBSs. And he was talking to us about it. And I read the article and I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And it was more or less the story of a sysop running his BBS and the different people that were on his BBS and his um, online connections with them and the real life connections with them. Not so much hacking, but pirating and stuff that was going on. And it was all written in a, in a very exciting manner and, and it made it seem very glamorous and stuff like that. So this was probably after we had been BBSing for a while. But that's the thing that really made me think, oh man, I want to be a sysop. I want to be cool <laughs> like this guy in Spin Magazine who um, was running a BBS. And in particular, I remember the name of the BBS featured in the article. It was called The Cardboard Box. Oh, and I thought, oh that's a great name for BBS, <laughs> The Cardboard Box. And then when I eventually had a BBS of my own, I was thinking about that and I was thinking, oh, I want to have a, a name that's, that's evocative of that kind of stuff. So when I had my own BBS, I tried to come up with a name that was kind of like Cardboard Boxy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that's how BBS has kind of got into our consciousness. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we'll, we'll nerd out for a little bit. What, what specific computers and modems did we use? Mm -hmm. For us, the BBS era was from the C64 mm -hmm. to our Amiga 500s. Yeah. That was, that was the era that we were using them in. That's from, right. From the 80s, but into the 90s as well. Into the early 90s. Yep, that's right. Yeah. So I already mentioned I had the 300 baud modem that some neighborhood kid sold me. Mm -hmm. And then I got, I did get a 1200 baud modem that was the sleek style. Yes. Yeah. And I remember buying that at the Kmart. Oh, yeah. And that was marked down, I feel... Like I caught it on sale when maybe it was as low as 50 bucks or oh yeah, 80 bucks or something like that later on. Yeah. yeah. 
And of course, like 1200 baud is crazy slow, but it was four times faster sure. than 300, right? That's right. So, so for us, what a huge increase in speed. Yeah. Yeah. And the first terminal program, the terminal program mm -hmm. being like what controls your modem, what you send to receive information. The first terminal I used was called Common Sense. And yeah. I think it was bundled with the Commodore modems. It probably was. Yeah. With yeah. all those, and it would also have um, all those uh, quantum link brochures that would be packaged oh, in with the modems yeah. and the advertisements for, I want to call it Habitat, but I'm not sure that that's what um, the, the system was called. Uh, George Lucas, uh, Lucasfilm, I don't know who, what it was called at the time, had this online virtual place where you could go and you had avatars that would walk around. And looked very much like the Zach McCrackens and, you know, their, their games at the time, but it was called Habitat, I think. And that was always bundled in there. And I was thought, oh, that would be so cool. That Habitat ha seemed to have a lot to do with the Labyrinth game, mm -hmm. the movie Labyrinth, that same kind of technology or graphics style seemed to be used yeah. in Habitat as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, Habitat was part of Quantum Link. Mm -hmm. which did start on the C64 and then quantum link became AOL. Uh, eventually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Eventually. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I started with my 1200 baud Commodore modem and, um, I think somebody at Westgate our high school sold it to me. Yeah. My first modem, I, I didn't have to deal with the 300 baud modem. Yeah. I just went straight to 1200 baud and that was great. And I feel that you and I probably got our modems right around the same time, almost exactly. I don't remember, I don't have strong memories of being at your house and doing BBSing or stuff with the modem and thinking, oh, wow, this cool thing that Robin's got, I've got to get one of these myself. I just kind of remember just having one and it seemed like we all just got them really quickly around the same time, me, you and Ron. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder if I had the 300 for a while, but didn't really mm -hmm. know what, like I was saying, I didn't really know what I was yeah. doing with it. <laughs> so when do you figure the computer store, Mikadon, opened in the mall? And whenabouts would you have started working there? Because I know we're going to talk about some local boards later on. I didn't have this on the list. Yeah. Mikadon had a board. It seems to me that uh, our friend Ken who worked at Mikadon and then managed Mikadon for a while after that, he had like a nice list of all the local boards. Maybe that was kind of our jumping off point for finding some other boards in town to call or some boards in town to call, period. Yeah, it's it's kind of staggered because Mikadon wasn't until 88 or... Yeah, eight, so it must have been or later. Or 89, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think earlier than that, we had... There must have been other connections where... Yeah, yep. all you would have to do is find one and you'd be set to find others. Yeah. So maybe at some of the other computer stores around town, we would have found a number or something like that. Yeah, and then, so from the C64, we got our Amigas around 88, mm -hmm. uh, Amiga 500s. And mm -hmm. of course, our old Commodore user port modems were no good on that thing. Right, so very quickly we were buying modems. I, I believe I still have the box. I have a 
Supramodem. Yeah. Uh, I think, did you get the same model? A 2400. 2400. That was the one to have. Yeah. Even having to buy a serial cable uh, to go from the Amiga to the modem was Mm -hmm. like, oh, I got to pay $20 or whatever it was. It was like a fair bit of money, $15, $20 for this cable just to go from the computer to the modem. Uh, On the C64, you just plug in like a cartridge and... (laughs) It's funny the things that we do or don't appreciate and what what I yeah. remember from it. But yeah, on the Amiga, it was 2400 and then I had that for a long time. Yeah, it seemed like 2400 really was state of the art. Like and even within the BBS scene, like if you called it 300 baud, it was like you were lower on the on the tiers there. You were <laughs> a lower cast and they would sometimes even say, "Okay, you can call in at 300 baud, but we're only giving you 15 minutes and right. we're kicking you off." Yeah. But if you had a faster modem, you could stay on for longer. So there's there's many advantages to having the faster modem besides just having the faster speed. The boards would let you stay on longer too. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that funny? You could do more per minute plus you got more minutes to yeah. to stay on eh? that's right yeah um i made that funny noise just a second ago as you were talking about the super modem because i just noticed the little screwdriver that i have here on my on my desk i don't know if you can read that u.s robotics i have a u.s robotics uh screwdriver and u.s <laughs> robotics uh, among many other things i'm sure they uh they were big into the modem scene as well like I think U.S. Robotics probably was one of the big names as far as modems went. Yeah, we we were we were fans of the super modems, and the super modems were really big on the Commodore side of things. I don't know how big they were on other systems, but you know, a lot of respect for the super modems. Yeah, Supra R A. Yeah, and then finally I got like a thirty three six modem. Well, into do you the- think you went? 33.6? No, it's, it's bizarre, but yeah. I'm almost certain I went all the way from 2400 yeah. and didn't buy another modem until 95. Really? When I got the 33.6. Oh, wow. Isn't that weird? Yeah. I remember yeah. you got like... I got either a 14.4 or a, a 192 um, somewhere, I would think, early university. Yeah. So very early 90s. Yeah. I would have upgraded because, you know, running the boards and I think at some point I was way into BBSs, maybe more than you were. I think that was, that was my thing for a while. Yeah. I think you continued on for quite a while, longer than I did. Yeah. And one thing to address, BOD versus BPS, it's it's become fashionable for people to be pedantic about Mm -hmm. BOD and BPS. It's not BOD, it's BPS. Sure. And okay. yeah. And You're probably right. Well, yeah. And it's funny what I've got basically proof that both the advertising and the magazines of the day really didn't care. Yeah. Yeah. Like they would just keep saying bod because that was the term I think that the consumers knew. Yeah. So when you went past 2,400 to 9,600 bod, they said that. Yeah. But the modern pedant mm-hmm. wants to say that's BPS. So fair, fair enough. It is when, mm-hmm. when you go, yep. I, I looked into this more, it's essentially when you go past 2,400, well, actually, even if you go past 
1200 in some cases, how many bits are being transmitted per second, bits, mm -hmm. BPS. Baud is the number of symbols, but you might be transmitting multiple bits per symbol. It's mm -hmm. You might have 1200 or 2400 baud maximum, but then what they do are overlaying multiple streams on top of that okay. to send more bits within that same symbol rate. Okay. So it's kind of like multiplexing where the, the slow baud rates like 300 and 1200 are just one bit per yep. baud, but then those higher ones, when they go up into the crazy speeds, like the 144, mm -hmm. 33.6, they were sending multiple bits per baud. Well, there you go. So just, just to, I hope I made that more clear. <laughs> yeah. I did not know that. I knew that there was a, at some point that the terminology kind of changed and I knew that there's definition and I knew that I was usually wrong what I would use, but I also <laughs> yeah. knew that I didn't really care too much. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the important thing is that nobody cared that yeah. I, that I knew yeah. in the eighties. You just said bod. That's what you said. Yeah. So let's talk about some of our, our favorite local boards. Yeah. So I mentioned that um, Mikadon had one. I think that they called it CityNet. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. is it. Yes. CityNet was kind of, in my eyes, the professional BBS in town. And yeah, our buddy Ken, who worked at Mikadon, I think he was also kind of became the sysop of uh, CityNet. Sysop, of course, is the system operator, the guy who in many cases, like owned the computers and, and ran the software and maintained the BBS and in this case, the bills and... paid the bills. In this case, Ken was an employee of the company that ran, that bought it all. And, but he ran the thing. Yeah. So there's, there was city net and that seemed like the fine upstanding BBS. And what was really weird. Do you remember the big game that was on city net? No. That, People would call in because this was the place in town to play this game, Kino, which is kind of like, I really don't even really know what Kino is. I think it's it's some sort of gambling oh, type yeah, game, yeah, right? Yeah, it is a gambling game. Yeah. In, yeah. In fact, it's really popular in Australia. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah. Is it like, is it kind of like a bingo type game? Like you pick some numbers, like maybe a reverse bingo or something like that? doesn't really matter what it was something to do with numbers every day the kino numbers would come out or something like that and you would find out i don't think that there was real prizes or anything on it but people would play kino on the city net bbs and the funny thing was and we made fun of this we didn't call it kino we called it ken o <laughs> because our buddy ken his last name was owens ken o <laughs> He, he was the sysop of the board, and that was the big game. So it was, hey, going to have a game of Ken O. Ken O. <laughs> Ken O. Ken O wins again. Now? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it is like a, it is like a lottery kind of game. Okay. Yeah. Mikadon's uh, BBS sitting net there, they always had the movie listings and stuff on there as well. So it's like, you want to know what movies are playing? Yeah, just log on to CityNet. Uh, it's easier than going and finding the newspaper. Yeah, it's funny that I rarely, if ever, used CityNet. Yeah. Even though I was an employee, even though yeah. I was into BBSs, I don't know why that particular board just wasn't part of my my rounds. Well, you know, it wasn't 
it wasn't particularly Commodore focused, right? Yeah. So there wasn't a lot for us that as far as that goes. Like they they had, I think, subboards for the Commodore folks, the Amiga folks, the Atari ST folks, but everybody knew that it was really all the PCers were going there. And you just go there to play Keno and check the movie score or movie times or whatever like that anyway. <laughs> Keno. <laughs> Keno. It's funny, uh, we're we're mentioning that one first, but that being like a commercial board. Now you weren't paying? Mm-hmm. Were were you getting in for free or I definitely didn't pay. Yeah. Was so it... there's probably some free I it, when I say it was commercial, I don't know that it was a pay to use system. But it just seemed to be very, it seemed to be much more corporate than the... Yeah, they 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 definitely did have some pay-to-use features. Okay. But maybe that's something they developed more uh, later. Mm-hmm. Or maybe as an employee of Mikadon, we got in free in or whatever. Free. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, but and that wouldn't even have been one of the very first boards that we were on anyway, because it probably showed up later, right? So like in yeah. the, the mid-80s... When we started doing this, I remember one of the very first bulletin board systems that I, I used was called the Citadel. Now, do you remember the Citadel? I remember the name. Yeah. Yeah. So the Citadel was run by a guy. Um, so Thunder Bay used to be two cities, Port Arthur and Fort William. Robin and I lived in the south end of town in Fort William. Yeah. The north end of town was Port Arthur. So the Citadel was run by a fella who was, I think, just about a year older than us. From the north end of town. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the guy's name. I used to know the guy's name. I remember his house because I knew, I went to his house once. Um, but this BBS, the guy went to Port Arthur Collegiate Institute. And for whatever reason, that always seemed like the snooty north end high school. Yes. We had, we had a snooty south end high school. Robin and I didn't go to the snooty south end high school. <laughs> but this guy went to the snooty north end of high school. And that didn't necessarily make him snooty. He just happened to be snooty, or at least I perceived him as snooty. (laughs) And the Citadel BBS seemed like a very elite, clicky kind of BBS. But it was kind of, it was the BBS that that I wanted to be on the inside with, because it kind of seemed cool too. (laughs) Yeah, I remember some of the BBSs, even their names would be mm-hmm. evocative, right? Like like sure. the Citadel. You're like, oh, I, oh I, yeah. I can't get into the Citadel. I'm a lowly <laughs> pleb, you know? That's I'm a, right. I'm a lowly... I, I go to Westgate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like the white city of Gondor or something like that. I, I would never be allowed in there. Yeah, we're poor peasants. They'll never let us in. That's right. Our thatched roof cottages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so there was... It's funny. I remember one particular user um, from that BBS. His handle was Garp. Mm. Um, presumably, he took his name from the movie The World According to Garp. At the time, I had no idea what this movie was. Yes. Um, but his name was Garp on the boards. Yeah, it was just a, a really neat time because I was kind of meeting these people, but not really meeting them. Like you only would meet them online. And so you had no idea what they looked like. You had no idea what they dressed like. You had no idea, you know, how they sounded when they spoke, you know, Mm. so none of, none of these things that, uh, 
I typically would use to try to, you know, figure out what this person's personality is like, or, you know, where they come from, or are they like me? Or are they different from me? None of those cues were available for me. All that was there were their posts that yeah. they would write on the, on the, on the boards, right? This guy, Garp in particular, he seemed to be really literate and he could type well and he had, I don't know, he, he probably just had lots of time to work on his, his wit and his retorts and stuff like that. But he seemed very sharp witted and it's like, oh, you know, better be careful what you say around Garp because he'll really <laughs> zing you if he feels like zinging you. And I, I think that also kind of played into the whole elite um, feeling that I got about this particular BBS. And, you know, so the Citadel, it, it seemed cool. They seemed a little bit older, a little bit wiser, a little bit sharper than me. Yet I wanted to be in with that crowd at the Citadel. Yeah, it's amazing. That's right. And back then, I mean, nowadays, a lot of people are much more used to this phenomenon of online mm -hmm. communication but we do have at least little avatars for each other. We do have, you know, em emoticons or em emojis yep. to help express better. But back then we did not. No. So it was just like, yeah, just, just monochrome text. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. One other person I want to mention from the Citadel that I met on the Citadel was a fella who I became quite good friends with um, in university and his name was John. And I think I'm not certain what his handle was on the Citadel. It might've been Johnzo, but it might've been something completely different. Um, but he also went to the Port Arthur Collegiate Institute. He happened to be an Atari ST guy. I don't know. I, I don't imagine he was an Atari ST guy when I first met him on the boards because it would have been pre-Atari ST. So even though I ended up being Amiga and he was an Atari ST guy, we eventually became pretty good friends and, and we did some um, fun projects together in university and stuff like that. And like, so like we started with knowing each other from the bulletin boards. And it was like the first friend of mine that I had that started on a bulletin board and then became a, in real life, an RLL, I don't know, an IRL friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And a, a quick diversion, another thing about the North American uh, telephone system that mm -hmm. wasn't really true overseas is that we had, you, you pay your flat fee per month to have phone access, to have a phone number. But then in your own area code, or at least in your own city and maybe beyond, it was unlimited free calling. You weren't, you know, you, you just called. Right. When I lived in Australia in 1987, I moved there for one year with my family. I was shocked that you had to pay by the minute. You mm. paid a monthly fee. And then when you were actually talking on the phone, you were paying you know, pennies per minute, wow, which really added up and of course made it much less likely that people would spend daily, you know, hours every hours day hours, yeah. online. Like you just were not going to do that. So when I was in Australia, BBSing really didn't seem to be a thing. Even mm. teenagers talking on the phone wasn't even much of a thing. Right. We, you'd make a quick call and then you were off. So I guess unless you're really wealthy or whatever, but 
Yeah. So anyway, that was something that really affected it. So that really underlines this idea that you and I can pay our six or seven bucks a month mm-hmm. and just use it all That's the right. time. I yeah. am always online. Yeah. On the lines. <laughs> on the lines. So what are some of the other early BBSs that we were on? Yeah. And like, I think my favorite was one called Electronics 2000. Yeah. With uh, Sysop Dangerous Dawn. Yeah. And it was because it was a C64 and Amiga focused board. Mm-hmm. And I think I even would sign in there and then later found that Dangerous Dawn had his own computer business where he yeah. would sell stuff. Yeah. And so for like 8-bit show and tell uh, viewers, Dangerous Dawn is the guy who said, hey, Robin, I got this uh, super snapshot. Yeah. It's the new thing. You want one? You, know, you should buy one. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, tell what? And I, I totally, yes, it was like the greatest thing. Yeah. I think I didn't buy that because it was a super snapshot version five. I think it wasn't until at least 89, maybe even 90 that I actually bought my super snapshot. Anyway, no matter what, it was after I had my Amiga already. So Mm -hmm. it just goes to show how like, well, first of all, that, that breathed new life into my C64, Mm -hmm. but just that this was nearly an online purchase Yeah, in 89 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, of course, the, ultimately the transaction had to happen in person. Yeah. But it was all set up online. Yeah. Yeah. And I also, from Dangerous Dawn, I bought lots of uh, Amiga upgrades as well. I remember you and Ron were getting your first hard drives from yep. Dangerous Dawn. Yeah. Yeah. And with the custom plexiglass enclosures. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, that was all my invention, essentially. Yeah. Well, okay, like Don did all the hard work, <laughs> but it was my idea. I heard that this company called ICD was making Amiga peripherals, and or not just peripherals, but like expansions that you had to even open up your computer in some yeah. some cases. So they made one called the Add IDE, which you pulled your sixty eight thousand out of your Amiga, the processor. Yeah, put this little board inside put your CPU back on top and it added this IDE connector and then you could run a cable out your Amiga 500 and most Amiga hard drives were SCSI originally. Yeah. And IDE was this new cheap thing for, you know, the, the DOS computers of the day. Well, it was only for DOS, but this new cheap one, but the Amiga didn't have well, the Amiga didn't actually have SCSI built in either, but SCSI was somehow easier to implement, I think. Yeah. IDE was more CPU intensive. But anyway, what it meant is that this fairly cheap adapter opened up the world of cheap IDE hard drives. Mm-hmm. So I bought a 52 megabyte, what's the Seagate? Seagate? Yeah. Secret. Secret. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it was just the bare hard drive. And I was like, Don, is there a way of doing this? He's like, well, I don't know, you know. So he thought about it a bit, but he had this guy make up these little plexiglass enclosures for the hard drive. Yeah. And then rigged up this way of running the power cable out of the Amiga. Anyway, it was was really 
hacky looking because you just got this yep. like bare cable and power cable hanging out the, the side of your Amiga and the hard drive just sat on top, but it was the cheapest by far, like hundreds of dollars cheaper sure. than any other solution. Yeah. So, uh, oh yeah, I guess we're going to have ourselves, but you, you're going to tell That's more okay. hard drive stories later, but yep. basically Electronic 2000 was a really neat place because of that. And Dangerous Don, DD. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> he was like, he was an adult doing this stuff. And yes. like, I think basically like, because E2000 was in the very early years, one of our first BBSs that we were on, as opposed to the Mikadon City Net, which was run by the corporation. Yeah. But Dangerous Don, he was like the first adult sysop that we kind of knew. Yes. So that was kind of a little bit different too. It's like, okay, now we're not just talking with other kids in high school. We assume like we could have been talking to adults on the Citadel. I don't know. Yeah. Right. But it seemed like they were all kids in high school to me, (laughs) but no, DD, he's like, he's a grown up man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And there's even the interesting social, like he was as old as our parents. Mm -hmm. And I don't think my mom and dad had any idea that I was talking to this arguably strange grown-up. He wasn't a strange yeah. guy at all, by the way. No. He's a very, very uh, up, upstanding kind of citizen guy. Mm-hmm. But I started making these these deals with him that, oh yeah, <laughs> I'm going to buy this stuff from you. Hey dad, I need your credit card number. Yeah. You know, he's like, why? You know, like, well, I'm buying this thing off this guy. Who is this? Where is he? <laughs> and dad, I need you to drive me to this guy's house. You know, like. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> There's no like storefront or anything. I gotta go pick up my hard drive from his basement. What? <laughs> what is a hard drive? It was all a bit of a culture shock to my parents. Uh, yeah, you know, nothing. We never did have anything really weird happen, but. No. Okay. So maybe one more local BBS before yeah. we kind of, kind of move on. Um, it would, this, this came on a few years later, probably in the early nineties. Um, after I was actually running a BBS of my own for a while there, um, there was this other fellow in town, another student in town, you know, just like us with the Citadel, you know, those guys were a year or two older than us. We were a year or two older, I think, than this other fella. And I know I kind of gave him a bit of a hard time back in the day, but now he's kind of like, uh, I think, I think he's, is he a patron of yours? Yeah. Or like, well, he's a, he's a very regular listener of uh, growing up eighties, and yeah, and of, he's yeah, and he comes out to like the retro computer club, and so we've hung out a bunch, like not in the last couple of years, but we've we've hung out a bunch recently and stuff like that. So it's like, yeah, the, he in 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 the olden days, he seemed like this kid who was like a year younger than us, yeah, but now he's just like just one of us kind of thing, right? <laughs> so our friend. Stephen Heward, he had, uh, uh, he started up his own BBS, Amiga BBS back in the day too. And he called it the Amiga Showroom. Yes. Which would, you know, that's a, that's a fine name for BBS. Of course, my nickname back in grade nine, I got the nickname Shroom because I had a terrible haircut. I had a terrible mushroom haircut and, but it stuck with me and, and that was okay. And so that was my handle on all the BBSs and everything, right? And I guess that's something we didn't mention is, you know, before, like, basically, BBSs were the first place that we had handles 
Yeah. Um, like aliases online because we weren't into CB radio and we didn't have handles on CB radio. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but we did on BBSs. And of course, mine was Shroom. Yes. Anyway, Steve starts up his BBS, the Amiga Showroom. And I don't think I came up with this. This sounds like a Ron kind of thing, but maybe it was you. I don't know who it was came up with it. But, or maybe Jeff, I don't know. But we ended up calling the Amiga Showroom the Amiga Showroom. Showroom. <laughs> it was kind of like changing the showroom into my handle and stuff like that. Anyway, I just thought that was, that's just a little funny memory that I have from back yeah. in the day of Steve's BBS. Yeah, so greetings the, to Stephen there. and Yeah, we still have fun, fond memories of you and the BBSs. Yes. So what kind of things were we doing? Like we talked about leaving messages on the BBSs. Um, yeah. What other things were we doing on BBSs? Yeah, well, definitely we touched on it a little bit, but playing games on the BBS, mm -hmm. there was at least one game that we all loved for a while. It was a risk-like game. Yeah. And do you remember its name? I don't, but that is like the medieval kingdom building fantasy expansion yeah. RTS type game that we played. Yeah. That's right. And uh, so that was a huge hit. Mm -hmm. And I remember us logging in. Now, one of our friends, well, actually our friend's younger brother, Mark. Yep. He was on so many BBSs. He was. He was on like, I don't know, maybe a dozen of them. And he would call them all like in a circular ring, basically. Yep. And again, they didn't have an extra phone line, so it was impossible to get through sometimes. It was easier to ride your bike to Ron's house <laughs> yes. if you wanted to talk to him <laughs> than to try to call him. Yeah, yeah, it was something else. So we would play these different games and... It, it was pretty cool that you were playing these games with other people on yep. one computer, like a multiplayer game yep. and not necessarily just even a two player game, but like, uh, you oh, know, yeah. an eight or a 16 player game sure, or yeah. whatever. Yep. It, it was basically like we were playing asynchronous multiplayer real time strategy games, except it wasn't real time strategy. It was turn based strategy games. And it wasn't even you had to wait for everybody else to take your turn, their turn before you got your turn again, like you would play in a normal board game. It was basically you could play once every six hours or something like yeah. that. You could take a turn. And so if you were like Mark, cycling through all of your boards, playing all your turns, maybe it would take you six hours to, to get through everything. <laughs> and then you could play your turn again, right? So like the people who are willing to commit to calling in every six hours could maximize their playtime and really do well. And Mark did really well. But yeah, we were all in on on that game. I remember one of the very first games that we played. Um, I know Jeff, our buddy Jeff, was big into this one too on the Citadel was called Catacombs, or mm. it was called Catacombs. Yeah. I pronounce it Catacombs, but Jeff always pronounced it the Catacombs. Catacombs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, and it was, it was almost like... Um, a text adventure that you were playing, but it was kind of a role-playing text adventure. It was actually kind of a lot like um, a fighting fantasy novel online. So you would have your stats, um, but you would you would play the the game like a text adventure, and then you would have your combat scenarios and stuff like that. And that was a lot of fun too. Could you consider it like a mud, like a multi-user? Yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah, dungeon. Totally. Yep. 
Yeah. And then yes, leaving messages for other people that yep. basically like email, uh, mm-hmm. and, but you know, you're leaving your message on the BBS for somebody to check in on and, yep. and then they yeah. reply. There's both like the private messages that you mm-hmm. could send and the actual message boards, which are, which kind of turned into like forums, mm-hmm. um, which we would know as a forum now. So there would be like a different board for whatever type of topic you wanted. I mentioned that um, CityNet had like the Amiga board, the Atari ST board, the PC board, but whatever sort of interest there was, you could create a board for it or the SysOp could create a board for it and you would have your various discussions in there. You would post something and people would reply to your posts and there could be multiple threads and messages within the boards and stuff like that that would be public as opposed to the private messages just between people. Do you remember the... Anything in particular you really liked, uh, a particular topics of interest? No, I think just because that was just so new and the ability to get in there and just chime in on whatever topic there was, is like, I don't, I don't mind what we're talking about. We're talking about stuff. This is cool. (laughs) And and that's how it was. Like people just would throw in their own two cents and you know, whatever. I remember trying to find some programmers and, and game developers and, and that was really tough. I'll, I'll talk about that a bit more later, I think. How about downloading games, Robin? Did you, like, especially local, did you find that BBSs were good for downloading games? I remember getting some graphics, like C64 graphics, and mm-hmm. downloading them. Uh, basically, it's like Petsky graphics, yeah. right? Yeah. And so they were these, like, a, a full screen of... C64 text, but the graphic characters were included in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there'd be a color component too. So I guess there's about two kilobytes worth of yeah. 2000 bytes worth of, of graphics. So there was that. And I do remember trying to download some games, mm-hmm. uh, but at first it was really confusing because they'd be these compressed files. Yeah. And that was weird. Like, um, I remember like, for the Amiga, once we were doing Amiga stuff, um, the the LHA format, yeah. the LHZ format. Yeah, that's that's right. Tell me if I'm remembering this correctly. It seemed like when you would connect to a BBS, you would have to know what baud rate you were connecting at. What you know, if there's any parity bits that were being used, odd, even, none. Um, but when you did file transfer. Did you select a specific file transfer protocol at that point and you would have to match it up from the BBS and your terminal program? And this was separate from your connection type thing. So you had to make sure that you had the right uh, file transfer protocol going on at the same time as well, right? Yes. So I remember things like Kermit was one of the ones. Of course, I'm going to remember Kermit, right? Because I love the Muppets. (laughs) You'd have to have the right... file transfer protocol going on too. So there's all that stuff to navigate. Am I, have I got the right protocol now that I've got it? What do I do with this LHA file? I've never seen one of these before. I got to download a decompressor program now. And yeah, it's all new. Yeah, that's right. On the C64, we had punter and Mm -hmm. yeah. And punter was made by a guy named Steve punter who is in the, uh, he's still around. He's in the Toronto area and he was kind of like a contemporary of Jim Butterfield's. Uh, yeah. I actually met him and Jim Butterfield, uh, at the same time, uh, cool. once in, in Toronto, 
So we got this punter pro call. And then the one I think I used the most over the years was X modem. Yeah. X modem and Y modem. And I think there was Z modem as well. Yeah. Eventually. But yeah, generally it was X modem. It was X modem for most. And then, uh, late in the day, Z modem was like the king because it, yeah. it was extra good compression, extra fast. Yeah. Do you ever call long distance for to download stuff or to, yeah. find, to try to find stuff? Yeah, yeah, that was until probably into the nineties. Maybe it was the very end of the eighties, mm -hmm. and I remember there being big Amiga boards that I would hear about down in the states. Right. Uh, so it was an expensive long distance call, but I remember just a few times thinking, "Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to call." Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, you're on the clock paying by the minute. Yeah. Uh, maybe like 20 cents a minute or something yeah. crazy like yeah. that. And dialing in and trying to find like, what am I looking for? Am I downloading a game? Am I downloading? Is it public domain? Is it good? Good stuff. Yeah. And yeah. And trying to download files as quick as I could. I don't remember the name of the Amiga BBS, but it was a huge one, apparently, mm -hmm. uh, several states down into the U.S. Neat. Yeah, I, was, I never, I didn't really call out of town very much at all. Yeah, so I, I, I only did the few times and then, you know, I got the phone bill and I was like, oh, that's, was that really this. worth, was that really worth $40 or whatever, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, I do remember downloading um, like text big text files and text magazines and uh, like conspiracy theory type papers <laughs> and, and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, downloading those kind of files, those kind of docs, or I don't know what we would call them back in the day, but that kind of stuff was interesting to me. I, I enjoyed that or downloading like the BBS listings for across Canada or something like that. Those were always fun to download those text files. Yeah. Yeah. Text files were cool. And, and this was getting a bit more into the internet age, like where we start to have university access, mm -hmm. but, uh, I know text files like Commodore hacking. Mm -hmm. And then later on, uh, well, just a year or two later, there's Amiga report. And okay, so just yeah. gotta give a shout out to, uh, Jason Compton, who was the editor of Amiga report. Later into the nineties. Cool. Uh, and those text files, those got around on the BBSs. I'm these ones in particular, I'm naming, I got over the internet. Right. Using my modem and my Amiga. You know, the, and, and actually some of the earliest ones were hacking, uh, and it potentially were, had illegal information or if it wasn't illegal, but this freedom of information, this, you know, mm -hmm. sharing knowledge in the form of text files originally yeah. is, is what really came under attack when the U S government thought, and the RCMP up here in Canada thought, you know, illegal information is being mm -hmm. moved around. And that very idea that certain combinations of characters could mm -hmm. be legal and illegal is, is a very interesting one, like even philosophically or, you know, legally. Sure. And then that's out of that is how the whole electronic, uh, EFF. The EFF, the Electronic Freedom Foundation. Yes. How it was formed because of the U.S. Secret Service cracking down on bulletin board systems mm -hmm. and that whole thing. So I, I was reading 
I don't think we'll get deep into this, but I, I was reading a book called The Hacker Crackdown recently. Yeah, yeah. And I was mostly reading it because the Steve Jackson Games, a game, a role-playing game company uh, in Austin, Texas, got raided by the Secret Service. And they came yeah. in, stole their BBS computer, stole, actually took, stole, I said stole. <laughs> Legally, they had the right to do it, apparently, but... Yeah. Yeah, the Secret Service took all their computers and really Steve Jackson Games was doing nothing illegal at all. They're just running a business. Yeah. But they're making a game about cyberpunks. Yep. And that combined with the fact that they had one employee who was on other BBSs that were a little less uh, above board, yeah. a little bit more shady. And that was enough to, to make that happen. But hmm. Yeah, the hacker crackdown. I remember that book. When do you know? You don't happen to have that around. I'm just curious uh, when that came out. That was like '92, late '80s. Oh, that was early '90s. Yeah, it was '92. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yep. the the stories. Yeah, I remember reading that. Go one. back to the '80s, but yeah, it wasn't out yep. until the '90s. Online classifieds. Yeah, Darren, you got uh, a story. Kind of alluded to this before, and I may have told the story before. So you know, before the Kijijis and the Craigslists and the Ebays. There was your local BBS and Dangerous Dawn. No, not Dangerous Dawn. I got to think of somebody else. Garp might decide, hey, I'm, <laughs> I want to sell some stuff and I'm not going to put it in the newspaper. I'm just going to post it on the BBSs. And so I got my first copy of SimCity, real physical copy. Love SimCity, a favorite game of mine, because somebody was selling it on the BBSs. They posted it up on the BBS. I, I replied to their message. I said, hey, I'd love to buy your copy of SimCity for $10 or whatever it happened to be. <laughs> yeah. How are we going to do this? We'll just come on down to my house and down to the basement and I'll sell it to you. <laughs> come Which sounds in like here. a really <laughs> creepy, stupid thing to do. But I rode my bike across town from... South side in Fort William to the north side in Port Arthur. And I knocked on the door and I went down into the basement <laughs> and I handed over my cash and I got a great copy of, of Sim City. Yeah. You emerged yeah. with it. Yeah. And you didn't tell your parents. And my life. Yeah. And you're, you still had your life. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I told my parents or not. Yeah. yeah. It's just, no, I'm going for a bike ride across town to it just buy some games. Go to some guy's house. Yep. Never met him before. Nope. Yep. Yeah. So I was mentioning earlier, I was looking for programmers. Yeah. When I was a kid and I was making these games, I think I thought it was totally normal that you were, that everybody was a programmer. Right. Mm -hmm. If I talked about this before, like, Mm, oh, okay. Quick, quick story. I remember going to this like church Sunday school picnic meetup thing at somebody's house. They had like a big house, swimming pool. And so a whole bunch of kids were there. We went into the house and they had a Vic 20 and they were playing, you know, some, some Vic 20 game. I I don't know what one, it might've even been Omega race or, Mm -hmm. uh, something that I didn't, well, the important thing is I didn't recognize that. Okay. And so I honestly and innocently asked the guy, oh, did you make that? You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. standing around and I actually thought it would be normal for people to make games and, sh- you know, yeah. show them because that's what I did. 
Yeah. And they, and I got super, like all the guys laughed at me and it was like this really sarcastic response, eh? Yeah. And I felt stupid. I guess I felt stupid for the naive question, but they were the ones that thought it was unthinkable to make games, sure. right? And I thought, yeah. oh, this is pretty normal. And I think I had... Somebody's got to do it. Yeah, well, was people, it you? people make the games. I'm trying to do this. That's yeah. right. This is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to find people who knew uh, yeah. how, to, how to make games at, at this higher level. So when I first got on the BBSs, it kind of continued like Electronics 2000. Mm -hmm. I was looking for programmers. There'd be a couple guys who obviously were just dabbling it, but some of them would talk big. Mm -hmm. And so... I actually had made a game, which I think I just called like Blocks or something like that. Okay. And it was a Tetris-ish game. I was coding in basic still. I hadn't learned machine language yet, but I did have a compiler to speed it up. Mm -hmm. And you had this kind of little block and you could rotate the block in the middle of the screen. It was almost like Cosmic Arc. Okay. And blocks would shoot in from the sides and top at you and you had to make them fit into like these little squares yeah. had to fit in and you're kind of building this one bigger block and you're trying to keep it square. Yeah. Anyway, it's just this idea I had and I, you know, I coded it and it was playable. Yeah. Oh, and I think that's when I was still going by the great Harbronsky. Oh yeah. That was my handle for a little while before I took Macbeth. Yeah. And so I made this game and I was like kind of nervous and excited. Well, what did I do? I guess I had to turn into some kind of archive. Anyway, I upload it to the BBS yeah. I say, like, hey guys, I made this game. Try it out. Let me know what you think, right? It was yeah. just like dead silence. <laughs> nobody, it was like, nobody tried it. And then Dangerous Dawn did try it. He said, that's pretty neat, Robin, <laughs> or something yeah. like that. And then that was it. Yeah. <laughs> but it was still significant in that, you know, here I am making a thing, putting it up there electronically, mm -hmm. and, and at least one other person did try it and I got a little yeah. bit of feedback. Yeah. I, I wish I had that. I think that game's lost. Hmm. That was the experience. I didn't know that in the future that would shape that same process of making a thing and uploading it mm -hmm. uh, would shape my career <laughs> yeah. for, for years to come. Neat. Shall we move on to another topic? Yes. About BBSs. So yeah, just to talk a little bit more about hacking and war games, even what our impressions were. Do you remember yeah. when you watched war games and a whole bunch of things like, yeah, hacking the grades. But one thing that really stood out to me was when, uh, Broderick, mm -hmm. he, he was at a payphone mm -hmm. and screwed off the receiver and then got like what the, the tab of a pop can yeah. and grounded the receiver or something. He does this oh, yeah, crazy yeah. thing in the payphone and manages to get credit. For yeah. a phone call, seeing somebody do that was like, what? And I guess that could work in some places or something. Yeah. But that was the, the coolest kind of stuff. And then I'd read about a guy named Captain Crunch. Yeah. And who was doing freaking, did, did you hear about how he got his name? Captain yeah, Crunch? yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because he got the whistle from a box of cereal. Yeah. That just happened to whistle at approximately... 2600. 2600 hertz, which just happened to be the frequency that the phone system for a time yeah. 
it recognized that tone yeah. as, uh, how do we say it? Unlock. Un- un- yeah. As, it, uh, it would open, open the phone system up to like operator mode yeah. so that you could send other tones down the line, just from the, from the, from the keypad to kind of program calls and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. 2600 was also the name of the magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if, if it was a real physical zine as well, but it's definitely, there was a, like a digital version, these text files that we would download 2600, um, I believe was, was one of those kind of text files too. Yeah. Yeah. What relates that to, to me, do you remember your ability to, <laughs> to whistle? I remember, I remember telling you about that. I don't know that I could actually do it though. I, it might've been one of my stories. No, no. See, I, well, yeah, sometimes you t- tell a tall tale. <laughs> I finished Cosmic Arc. Yeah. Like, I, but in this case, you really did once demonstrate to me. I whistled a carrier tone? Yeah, we called up a modem and there's the carrier tones while the two modems at either end are negotiating, negotiating how they're going to talk to each other. Yeah, yeah. There are these different frequencies that are played. And I saw you successfully, <laughs> like I could hear it. Yeah. Dial up a BB or yeah, dial a BBS and then whistle. And the other modem was satisfied by your tone. <laughs> that is a very satisfactory tone. Yeah. And then was waiting, you know, it was waiting for you to yeah. actually transmit data, which you weren't so good at. <laughs> But I know you, you actually got yeah. it to, into that next stage of negotiation. Yeah. Yeah. Which was pretty cool. hilarious. That's great. <laughs> so, All right. But did, did hacking, but just yeah. hacking a little bit. Yeah. Do you remember it seeming like scary or what? Oh what yeah. It was, it was dangerous and cool, you know, yeah. like reading the books, like cuckoo's egg and hackers crack down hacker the hacker crack down and reading spin magazine about the bbs's and the things that they were doing and getting in you know the police checking in on them and stuff like that all that was very cool and scary and dangerous but you know wouldn't it be cool if we could make free long distance phone calls yes and, and you know even like the whole war games thing or just calling your school or calling a library. And wouldn't it be neat if like I could just call the library and there would be a modem there and somehow I could do something with the library computers. But like our local library didn't have, like they did have a computer system for their card catalog, but there's no way that that was like just, hooked up to an outgoing line or an incoming line that you could dial into. And, you know, what was there really for us to hack? There really wasn't anything. It seemed like that we could even attempt to hack into, right? You know? Yeah. I, I was the same that I was pretty scared of it. There, there were enough rumors around about people getting busted by Mm -hmm. the RCMP Mm -hmm. that, you'd hear about guys getting their computer systems taken away from them. Sure. And you didn't know for sure it was, were they doing stuff with their, with their modem or were they doing stuff like, was it just piracy? What was going on here? Or was it the guys, oh, some guys were trying to sell pirated discs or maybe sell access to downloads. 
and you would never get the whole story. There was enough. It was kind of like whispering rumors mm -hmm. that, yeah, the mm -hmm. cops got somebody else and it was enough to mostly deter us, I think. Yeah. From, from really trying anything. But you know what? I do remember you would get these tools, uh, like you're, you're getting pirated discs of C64 mm. games and stuff. And every once in a while, there would be a specialized program on there, like a blue box mm -hmm. or war dialer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I couldn't help but play around with it a little bit and see yeah. what would happen. Did you ever try a war dialer? I don't think I did. What would the end game be for me using a war dialer? Well, I, I found a line that I could connect to. Yeah. But I don't know what it is or anything like that. So no, I, yes. I, I just never bothered. So that, that would be when the curiosity, it's like, I, I do remember using it a few times and knowing... Yeah. You know, I was getting, I was actually calling real people and annoying yeah. them. Yeah. But no caller ID back then. Nope. And uh, you were pretty safe unless the phone company could track you down if you made enough nuisance that they mm -hmm. really cared to. So in case you haven't heard of a war dialer, the reason for the name is from war games because uh, it's demonstrated during the movie where you program the computer to dial every number in a range of phone mm -hmm. numbers. And so it would go, you know, six, two, two, zero, 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 zero. And it would keep track. It would dial it. And if it found a modem at the other end, it would record that fact. Mm -hmm. And you would just leave the war dialer running like all night. And it would call like a thousand numbers or whatever. Mm -hmm. At the end, you'd say, oh, look, you know, this particular yeah. number. And then you would manually call it. And try to figure See if it you out. Could connect. And yeah. What was there? Yeah. What was it? Yeah. So I guess for you, you'd, you'd think, yeah, well, I don't know what it is. And it's, I, I guess it's not that interesting or, mm -hmm. but then I guess certain people with the, the right mentality, that is exactly what they were looking for. Mm -hmm. They were looking sure. for, to explore and to find out what was, what was there. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, that, that's, we, we don't have to go on and on about hacking but that was just a few yeah memories there robin you were talking a little bit ago about you know you programmed a game on the commodore 64 and you uploaded it to the bbs how about like writing any particular bbs software or or games that maybe would use a modem yeah i i remember trying to make a terminal but actually i th i think you did it first mm -hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I definitely I, made an attempt at that. Yeah. I feel like I remember coming down when you had the room in the basement at Beachdale. Yeah. Yep. And maybe you still had that crazy big black and white TV hooked up to it. Maybe. It yeah. might've been that. I seem to recall it being when I had my modem, I'd moved the desk to the other wall. And do you remember in the back corner of the room, that's where like the electrical panel and everything yeah. was. That's also where the, the plugin for my telephone line was in there. Oh. And so I, I had my telephone over in that corner of the room, but when I wanted to do some BBSing, I had, and I guess this is where I was thinking about my seven up telephone. I had a super long, stretchy, <laughs> coily cord from the seven up telephone yeah. that would stretch from that far corner of my bedroom 
like diagonally across to the other corner of my bedroom <laughs> where I would plug it in to the modem on the 64. <laughs> and I remember like working on a terminal program and a very rudimentary BBS type program in basic. Yes. In, in the basement there with that kind of configuration. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember just coming over to your place one time and you're like, look at this. And then you're showing, you I know, made a BBS. I made a BBS. <laughs> I'm like, what? And you can't do that. You can't. Yeah. And, and so it was pretty cool. Although I didn't realize at the time how simple the, it's so simple. The basics, the basic way, you know, to, to yeah. write a terminal in basic was as easy as opening a file Input yep. the character from the keyboard and then send it out the serial port. Yeah. And you could almost do it in like two or three lines of basic. Oh, like, yeah. You know. Yeah. It was really small. Like the demo programs that were in the manuals just laid it all right out there for you. Basically, here's the most rudimentary terminal program you could have is right there. And you just send your AT commands to the modem to set up the proper connections. So there's like, you didn't have to do any sort of configuration besides open up the channel to communicate and hailing frequencies open and just do what you need to do. <laughs> so yeah, I made like a, a very primitive bulletin board system, you know, as far as like welcome screens and, and all that, you know, that was just hard coded in basic, yeah. you know, um, probably print statements to the device. Um, so instead of just printing to the screen, you're, you're kind of sending that to the modem as well. And I really doubt that there was any sort of username, password combination for anything at all. <laughs> Basically, you could probably call up the BBS and it would show my my hard-coded title screen because <laughs> I'm all about the title screens. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, maybe it just went straight into chat mode with the sysop. So as yes. long as I was there, you could type to me and I would type back to you and then I'd boot you off the system when I was done with you. <laughs> yeah, and actually that that's something I forgot to mention earlier, that mm -hmm. sense of not not with your basic program, but just in general, you call BBS and that thing, the first time the sysop ever broke oh, yeah. in yeah. and just started talking at you. Yeah. That was it's like, that's just real-time communication with another person over the computer. Yeah. Over, it's, wow. It's text that he's typing. So that was so weird to me. And actually, the first time it was amazing and cool. And then it was yeah. kind of pretty cool for a while. And that became annoying yeah, it's because, like, because hey, I just want to do my thing. Yeah, I'm not here to talk to you. I want to talk to everybody else, Sisop man. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, that that was really cool. I don't know if I did call your basic BBS or not. <laughs> do Do you know if we ever oh. pr proved it? Oh yeah, yeah. Like I I know it worked. It it must have been you or Ron or yeah. some Jeff or somebody. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then what I remember being obsessed with in the late. 80s or maybe into the early 90s was the idea of making a multiplayer auto duel game like i love mm -hmm. you know i love auto duel yeah and but to do it over the bbs and yeah and i don't think we knew the terms client and server really back then right like sure. it became yeah. later in the 90s into the 2000s everything was client and server and and all that but at the time at first I was thinking, okay, you've, you've got your terminal program and you connect to the BBS 
but then I start thinking, yeah, but the game I want to make has more action in it. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I have to make my own separate terminal program equivalent, really a client program that allows you, uh, that has the sprites of the car and your guy, mm-hmm. and you can drive around. Okay, and then I need a program that's like a BBS, but it keeps track of the world and allows the players mm-hmm. to drive around. And then I realized, oh, but if I want multiple people to be driving around at once, I need multiple phone lines. And then I think I started getting this idea of having an Amiga, a multi-line Amiga server. Yeah. And then the Commerce 64 client, you could drive around, you know, and, yeah. and then, oh yeah. And then you need like the maps locally, but then you might want to be able to download a new, like there'd be a town and then a highway would come out from it and that would have a map, but then you might, the world might grow. There's a new highway. And then yeah. the server would send that out to all the clients and they would all download the new highway that everybody could drive on. Yeah. And I only got a little bit of code done and it just became overwhelming what this program, you know, what this project would be. Sure. I but I guess it's kind of like what was going on. Well, I don't know if any games were really like that at the time, like in the late eighties, mm-hmm. but that Habitat game yeah. was uh, similarly ambitious, but they were actually managing to do it. Mm-hmm. Of course, mm-hmm. they were an actual company and not just like a kid uh, <laughs> at, at home. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I remember being absolutely fascinated with that whole idea, but I, I couldn't pull it off. I was lacking, like even to have a multi-line server, I didn't have the, like to to have multiple phone lines and multiple modems hooked up to one Amiga. Yeah. Even that seemed beyond, beyond my reach. Oh yeah. 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 So you did manage to program your own very basic BBS. Yep. Very rudimentary one. But that wasn't enough to contain wasn't, your no. ambitions. That's right. I was so into this, you know, I, I never got to do it when I was a kid. I always wanted to be the DM, but Ron was our DM. So that was fine. In but the Dungeons and Dragons. In, in Dungeons and Dragons. That's right. But that's the sort of thing that I enjoy. You know, I like making the game and telling the story and writing the song. And I want to run the BBS too, right? <laughs> you know, I, I tried programming my own little BBS and, you know, I don't think that I was really thinking that that was going to turn into anything massive. I don't think I actually ever ran a BBS on the Commodore 64. But when I had my Amiga, I certainly did run my BBS on that. Um, I eventually figured, I, I found a compact enough <laughs> bulletin board system um, package that, you know, could be distributed on a single 880K disc yeah, and worked it out that, well, because I didn't have a hard drive yet. I yes. didn't have one of these ID hard drives <laughs> like you guys. No, you know what? I can, I can have a very rudimentary BBS running off a single 880K disc drive. A floppy. On a single floppy, floppy drive. drive. Yep. Yeah. On on my Amiga. And so I set up my first BBS, which is a single floppy <laughs> thing. 
but it it basically had everything going for it except for a vast download library. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, there's enough space there to have some message boards. I, I'm sure I even had a game or two on it. And I was always around to chat with you if you called up. It's like, hey, cool. Somebody's got, I'm going to chat because I'm sysop and I can <laughs> chat with you. And so I started my first BBS off a single disk drive Amiga 500 and my super modem 2400. Yeah, yeah. And so did you tell us the name yet? I haven't told you the name. So way back when Kay brought that spin magazine in and he was, and we were reading these gritty, dark stories about the underground BBS scene. And it was so cool. And the name of the BBS in the story was the cardboard box. I wanted to have a BBS like the cardboard box's name. So I ended up naming my BBS. And I think it was, it was pretty appropriate for an Amiga as well. I named it the trash can BBS. Yes. It still had a little bit of that grit, a little bit of that, that dirtiness, that underworldness to it. And, you know, there's the trash can on the workbench of the Amiga. It's like, hey, a little bit of connection there, too. Yeah. So I had the Trash Can BBS. Yeah, because on the Amiga, it actually was called the Trash Can, the trash wasn't can. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, at one point, like, I, and I was all about, you know, making the fun title screens and stuff like that, because that's what I did. And so using, like, the, the ASCII art to make the Trash Can on it. And I'm sure at one point I had Oscar the Grouch coming out of the Trash Can. <laughs> yes. But yeah, no, that was that was a whole lot of fun. And um I don't know, like I certainly didn't advertise the fact that I was just running off of a floppy disk on my A500. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if people knew that that's like, they're just yeah. calling rinky dink little system. Well, I know for sure that some people didn't because for a while your BBS, it was like the new BBS yep. and people were checking it out and liking it. Yep. And, yep. and I'm sure that at least once in real life, I heard people talking about the trash can BBS. Mm -hmm. They're like hanging like, around the computer store and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. And they're talking about like, it was a pretty cool thing. Mm -hmm. And I knew that it was just the single floppy yeah. disk BBS yeah. that. Up in my bedroom. <laughs> and then when I needed to use the phone, the BBS would go offline. <laughs> Yeah, so I I almost think because I had this inside information, I feel like I told some semi stranger, he's yeah. just writing that off of a single floppy disk, <laughs> and, the, and the other guy, no, yeah, that's impossible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and and eventually though, I did buy some some proper BBS software. I remember getting, um, you know, just checking out a whole bunch of things, and I actually did do a little bit of long distance calling around this time. Now I can, I can remember it now because I wanted to try out some of the other BBSs to see, you know, what seemed like a good BBS for me. And I settled on some software called Dialog BBS and it was put out by some group in, in Delaware. I just remember they're from Delaware. And, uh, I remember ordering that, I guess I just mailed them a check <laughs> said, I want this, the thing. Yeah. <laughs> And it just took forever to show up. I remember just checking the mailboxes every day, you know, it was like <laughs> a month goes by. It just seemed like it just took forever for Dialog VBS to show up. But then it showed up yeah. and it was cool. And I set it up and I think I've told the story about buying my hard drive and riding it home on the, in a plastic bag on my bike down the 
Trans Canada Highway to my house from the computer store. Yeah, yeah. You, it's like, what did you spend on that hard drive? A grand uh, or twelve yeah, hundred? Spent a thousand dollars or so. Yeah, to buy the the GVP um, sidecar hundred meg hard drive from Mikadon. And, yeah, yeah, it's just dangly in this plastic bag off your handlebars. Oh, Ten you, speed handlebars. That's right. As yeah. you ride your bike down the highway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. But so like I was I was legitimate at this time, you know, I had a proper hard drive, I had proper BBS software, and I had a download section and you know, I did my best to keep the lines open as often as I I could, you know, without trying to sound, you know, super cool or anything. <laughs> I think that the trash can was like the coolest BBS in town for a while there i think yeah. like my bbs was like the place to be yeah you I, know it's not just me right it's like <laughs> the people that are there and stuff like that right but you know it was pretty cool to be like the happening bbs in town for a while there yeah yeah no it yeah. really was it was electronics 2000 and the trash can mm-hmm. became i i started scaling it down probably because of girlfriends or whatever <laughs> yeah sure so i think i would only call like two bbs's yeah. And and yours, of course, was one of the two. Yeah. Well, because that's where all our friends were hanging out. For yeah, sure. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it seemed like a, a pretty neat thing. Um, and I remember at some point, this was probably getting into the university days. Well, it would have been getting into the university days. I have a couple university BBS memories. So the first is FidoNet, which was a pre-internet distributed bulletin board system messaging system like bulletin board message system yeah, yeah i guess what it, that's a, what it would be a network of yeah. bbs's right that all ran the same that had the same message boards on it mm-hmm. so you could post on the trash can bbs on my fidonet node and you know once a day it would get uploaded to a a node higher up the tree and it would get distributed within the next 24 hours or so and then come back down to all the other FidoNet BBSs. So you post something on my BBS and it goes up and it gets distributed potentially around the country and people could reply to that. And then on the next cycle, it would come back down to your local BBS. So it was, it was kind of neat trying to get that going. Um, on the BBS. Yeah, so you, and, you were having to call, pay long distance for that upload? Yeah, I think I think it was a Toronto place that was, was the node above me. Mm-hmm. So I know it didn't last very long, but I thought it was something that was pretty cool to try. Yeah, anyway. yeah it's yeah. a neat idea. Yeah, and then the other thing that I was doing is I learned Pascal. We all learned Pascal. Um, for our first computer science classes at university. Yeah. And this would be nine, some, 91 or so. Yeah, that's right. And so, of course, Pascal is a really good teaching language. But at the time, I thought, oh, this is my first like real adult language. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's, there's basic and there's logo. Um, but Pascal, ooh, this is something you do in university. It's, it's real. <laughs> and I think that we did a little bit of C maybe in. High school, I think maybe Mr. Dubik kind of took us aside and and there was a compiler and, and we were able to try some stuff. I, I seem to recall yeah. doing a little bit of C he, in high school. He gave us a C programming book yeah. each. Yeah, yeah, he definitely did. Yeah. yeah. So And I think there was a bit of 
opportunity to program in it there, mm-hmm. but I don't remember much of it except yeah. gain the book. Yeah. But anyway, in university, learning Pascal and then getting a, a Pascal compiler on my Amiga. And I remember writing like some stats programs for the BBS. It was very rudimentary stuff like, you know, how many callers in the last 24 hours would just kind of keep a log of some stuff, right? But, you know, I wrote that in Pascal and it was one of the first things that would pop up when you'd log into the BBS. It would show you like your little graph of how many people were on over the last 24 hours. And I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, I'm I'm adding to the BBS itself. So that was that was kind of fun too. Yeah. So your BBS program had the ability to call an external program. Mm-hmm. Here's yeah. some output and here's some input and yep. it could process a text file or whatever. Yep. Right? That, yep. That's pretty yep. cool. And that that's... Yeah, getting into like, ooh, real computer, real operating system type stuff, mm-hmm. right? Where different programs can communicate with each other yeah. in a way that the C64 didn't, you know, really do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I suppose that would have been like the first step towards a BBS game or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I never really went down that road. I did some research. I remember seeing the trash can BBS. Mm-hmm. being listed in some magazines and I thought it was like yeah I thought it was Boardwatch magazine but mm-hmm. I searched the archive on, on archive.org okay yeah, and yeah. and was not able to Wasn't find there. it there but I'm not sure that that's a complete set of the magazines yeah uh or maybe their OCR like you know of course they're just uploading PDFs and they sure. attempt to do text recognition in it. A- anyway, the short story is I couldn't find proof of finding the trash can BBS listed in a paper magazine. Yeah. But I'm pretty much certain yeah. it happened. Yeah. I'm I'm pretty sure that happened as well too. And, and that was an interesting way of oh it's legitimate, right? My my BBS oh, yeah. is listed in a paper magazine. I'm real. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So what about meeting our BBS friends in real life? You know, we kind of talked about that a little bit. I, I mentioned my buddy John that I first met on the Citadel BBS. And then I remember when we were still in high school, I remember being at the university for one of the computer contests and John was there as well. So at the very latest, it would have been when we were in grade 12 and John was in his OAC year because he was a year older than us. Um, So I remember John being there. I, I seem to recall us being outside the cafeteria, but Maybe that's a false memory. I'm conflating a couple things together. But yeah, John was kind of like the first guy that that I, I met outside of the BBSs in real life and became a friend. And then we ended up sharing some classes together because um, we were all in computer science together. And John and I, we worked on the, the university newspaper for a while together. We did some projects together on that. And yeah, lots of fun <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah, for me, I think Dangerous Dawn was the first one I met in sure. person. Yeah, uh, and most I don't know that I ever met Dangerous Dawn oh, okay. in real life. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, and I saw him even during the pandemic. He hmm. he called me up, and he still had some old C sixty four stuff yeah. stashed in his garage, and so I took that stuff and I actually made a video about it for eight bit cool. show and tell. Yeah, looking through it, but Dangerous Dawn. Uh, mostly, so I was mostly motivated to see him because he was selling computer stuff I wanted, eh? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then a really big event for me was this trash can, the barbecue. 
Yes. And I, th- I feel like we did talk about this before, but... I think we talked about it in the starting a band episode, because oh. I remember there was some sort of event and our friends who had a band um, were playing in your backyard. Yeah. And it's like, what was that for? I don't remember what that was for. And you said that was for the trash can barbecue. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And so that was partly because I had actually, my, my girlfriend at the time, I had given a Commodore 64 to, mm-hmm. and then she was on the trash can and, and, yeah, and other yeah. BBSs like lots. And that was kind of weird. And because she's much more social than, than me or some of us, <laughs> she was part of what really organized making that barbecue happen. It was yeah. in my, my backyard or actually my dad's backyard. Yeah. We had the, her band played there yeah. and we actually met the people in real life. It was, it was a really weird, yeah. weird thing and kind of cool. It was kind of cool. Like a good amount of people showed up, like probably a couple dozen or 30 people. Yeah. It feels I like it was in the backyard and yeah. it's like, wow, that's really neat that all these people would think that, yeah, it'd be fun to get together in real life with these people that we hang out with online. Yeah. And I think I really started something with her because after, uh, after we broke up, she in short order was online, found her first husband, uh, oh, yeah. on there and moved down to like Florida or whatever to, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So it's funny how much she took to, uh, to being online Yeah, and yeah, was was the first person I know of who met their spouse and got married uh, sure. online. Yeah, yeah. Not that that was a particularly good marriage for her, but anyway, number yep. number two is going better for anybody who mm-hmm. cares. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking already about like uh, online local classified ads. Um, so yeah, that, that was a way that you could meet people in real life as well. Yeah. But later on, on the, in the kind of the last legs of the trash cans, well, maybe the, I guess the trash can must have really run for quite a while. Cause I think at least two summers, we would play this game called Killer. You've just done an episode of 8 Bit Show and Tell about Steve Jackson and Steve Jackson. Yeah. So the US Steve Jackson um, had this game called Killer. The friendly game of assassination, where <laughs> he set up these rules where you could play this in real life game of running around and killing your friends. Except instead of killing your friends, you use you would use water guns or water balloons or you know whatever kind of method that you could think up of to simulate <laughs> some sort of weapon that wouldn't actually hurt your friends. But, you know, it could be putting a clothespin on their jacket or something like that. You know, some way of tagging them, right? So we would play this game called Killer in the summer times. And we would actually end up playing it in the winter times and stuff like too. All It seemed like for a year or so we played it a lot. But there's two summer periods and probably the... The winter in between. In, in between that we, we did this. That just a whole bunch of people that we didn't know that weren't regular BBS people kind of got onto the BBSs because they wanted to play this game killer <laughs> that I was organizing as well. And so we had like just the, the standard BBS nerds and the computer nerds, but we also had all the killer real life role-playing assassin nerds. 
that were on the BBS. And yeah. yeah, like, and it was great because you wouldn't necessarily even know in real life, the people that were playing the game. So there's that yeah. extra element of mystery to it. And we had teams set up. And so generally like, and I, I would always set it up in a way that I could play the game too, because I like to play the games, but it was great because like, you'd go out in the evening after work and you'd go on raids or like, you'd be like, I remember being at Hal's house and looking out the window and like the big black van would pull up <laughs> yeah. the street and just kind of park in front of the house. It's like, Oh, that's the guys from the other side of town are playing killer in the big black van. <laughs> We got to sneak out the back and get out of here. And, yeah. and this was like the early days of, you know, having like, we didn't have cell phones, but we would have like the wire, we would have the walkie talkies with the, the headsets on and we'd be talking to each other between cars. And this is the early days of the super soaker. So we had like the big weapons and stuff. Anyway, we'd go out and we'd do, we'd be playing killer and it was kind of like a 24 hour game, but we'd also come back to the BBSs in the evening or, yeah. you know, after everything and like you'd get the rundown on the different raids that people would be going on you'd find out you know who made successful hits on who and all this kind of stuff and get the points tallied up for the game and so that was a really neat way of mixing a real life live action role-playing game with pre-internet online communications and stats and and just talking about it it was it was a really neat year or so there yeah i i remember i think i only joined in like one or two games total mm-hmm. and it and said this is too intense th- it got too it was just too much but yeah, yeah i i remember we went to like the canada games complex for like a swim and a sauna mm-hmm. or whatever and then we're like leaving the complex <laughs> and people are there and and a couple of us got killed oh yeah right yeah. right we stepped out <laughs> and we're dead and there were other people coming and going from the complex. Oh, who were, sure. And, and people are like firing guns out of cars and like water guns <laughs> out of yeah. cars. And, and other people are running almost literally for their lives <laughs> because like they don't want to get killed. Right. Sure. Yeah. And, and the, the chaos of it. And you could oh, see, yeah. you could see the innocent bystanders were visibly upset yep. and confused at yep. what was going on here. Do you think, did it get to police level at, no, at any no. point? Not that you're aware Not of. Not that I was aware of. No, no. And we'll see, the thing was like, depending on the type of game that you were playing as well, like you would get points for your kills. <laughs> and, you know, I guess like certain people didn't care about the the points that you would get for like not having any witnesses to the murder, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't want to drive through a crowded parking lot leaning out of the window of your car, spraying the crowd, <laughs> collateral damage, just to get your target. Well, that seemed to be happening sometimes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, so. and right. Yes. That some of these people killing us were complete yep. strangers to us. We had oh, yeah. never seen them before. And yep. our only encounter with them was being <laughs> killed. Yeah. Right. And it was just, that was weird. And that, that was, that was probably towards the end of the BBS years for us. Yeah. Yeah. But they were, there were some fun, fun times oh, yeah. for sure. And one other thing I want to mention is a, just a shout out to Rob O'Hara, our friend and regular 
uh, regular correspondent. In, <laughs> That's right. In uh, Grown Up 80s. From the southern end of Highway 61. Yeah. <laughs> we being on the northern end. Yeah. Is is he right on I-35? Is that what you're saying? I, I think I think I-35 runs straight on down to Oklahoma City and Yukon. Rob wrote a book called Commodore quite mm-hmm. a while ago, and it's, and it's mostly about his BBSing adventures on his C64. Mm-hmm. And that book, uh, definitely, if you haven't read that before, check it out. And it was really inspirational for me in, in a whole bunch of ways in, in getting, yeah. even with getting 8-bit show and tell started, where I've got stories and things I want to talk about. And Rob was maybe the first guy I had known who was taking his, his eighties stories and putting them out there, you know, in, in mm-hmm. book form in his case. Yeah. And yeah, all kinds of BBS stories, lots of it about real life antics as well. Mm-hmm. So when did BBSing end for us in particular? Yeah, like it, I think that the start of the end was when we went to university mm-hmm. and we got there in mm-hmm. 1991 and we were assigned usernames to get onto the university system. I didn't yep. think much of that before, but then when we got that, we signed in and we found, oh, and they're like, oh, and here's your email address. It's mm-hmm. like rharbro at flash, flash.lakeheadu.ca. Yep. And like, well, what does this mean? Like I, an email, an, what, this is hooked up to all the other university computers around the world? Mm-hmm. And that just blew my mind. <laughs> yeah. And so one of the very first things I did was my friend Ben from Australia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I lived there in 87 and became very good friends, well, with a bunch of guys, but especially Ben I stayed in touch with. And I was like, I know Ben's at a university in Western Australia. Could I talk to him somehow? And mm-hmm. what I did was with my email address, I just emailed, well, I don't know, like some generic, I don't know if it was admin at... Yeah. You know, I found out his university domain name, but I didn't know his username. Sure. So I just emailed and <laughs> it said, is a Ben Figgis there or something? And that was so weird. And I got a very grumpy reply mm-hmm. from, I didn't know Ben's address, but I got a hold of some system administrator there yeah. in classic sysop kind of fashion it would have been helpful if you told me uh, what year he was, you know, a bunch of other information, sure. but yeah. here it is. And then he sent me, you know, whatever yeah. his email address was. I think that might have been the first email I ever sent. And I got a really grumpy, but very helpful response. Yeah. And then I was able to email my friend out of the blue. Yeah. And we started having this email conversation. That's when I was like, wow, this is to me free. Yeah, sure. I'm mm-hmm. paying university tuition, but I can email anybody who has an email address. That, yeah. am, that amazed me. So that was, oh yeah, that was like 91. I remember us figuring that out like almost instantly. It's like, yeah. okay, we've got access to email with our, with our accounts on the university computers. And I remember it must've been our first or our second day in professor black's pascal class. 
he was he was showing us basically how to log into the systems and stuff like that. And I guess he asked for a volunteer to come up and do stuff. So I volunteered <laughs> to go up to the front. Of course he did. Of course I did. And I logged in and I was so proud of myself because not only did I log in to the system in front of the whole class, yeah, but I had one male you know, waiting for me when I got this. Oh yeah. I've already got email. That's, that's how cool cool? I am already. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, you're right. This, this was kind of the end, like, because the, our access on the university's computers opened up, not just local online communications, but global online communications and information and stuff like that. So this was pre World Wide web. Oh yeah. In 91. But we had access to like Usenet and all the news groups and stuff that yeah. were there. So it was like the biggest global message board that existed at the time. Yeah. So who needs rinky dink trash cans, local <laughs> stuff? Well, you know, there was a place for that, right? Yeah. For a but while, there was, was still a place for it. Yeah. But this was also like massive, great, we're doing this. And we had access to FTP yeah. so we could find files repositories. And I remember just bringing a box of discs down into the dungeon and just, I had stuff downloaded to my account and just spending the afternoon swapping discs just to get discs so I could bring them home and try them out on the Amiga and, and see what, what I got. Oh, actually I didn't, you were able to download. Maybe not in the dungeon, but yeah, like to get physical, like to Yes. To bring discs home. So how did you get it from your Unix account mm-hmm. to that floppy drive that was on some, I guess, some DOS PC? I remember taking, yeah, yeah, my, my discs down there. And yeah. because we had, on the Amiga, we had um, something that would read PC discs. Yeah, you could read 720K, yeah, so, three yes. and a half inch PC disc. That's right. So that's what I must have been doing. But how did you get them? Like from my account? Yeah. Cause most of the time I was at these uh don't ask me. I don't remember. That was like 30 years ago. Oh, okay. It's this is fascinating to me because I didn't never figured out that part. Did I not talk to you during that time? Because oh I sure. I would always be on those like terminals, like the, yeah. the monochrome terminals. Yeah, the VT100s. Yeah, the VT one hundreds, but they didn't have a floppy drive in them. No. No. So over there were some Oh, I think there was the Sun the Sun Unix stations did though, right? Oh, really? Eh? Was it the Sun stations that had them? Okay. Yeah, but th- there was there was a way to do that. There was a way like, to I get remember, through. Like I would get those Eric Schwartz animations and stuff like yeah. that and I would I would put those up on the trash can. Okay. Yeah. So what I would do is go home. I ne- I don't know why I never knew you could do that. I would go home to my Amiga and yeah. we managed to find out there were four dial-up yes, numbers right. into the university system. Two of them were like twelve or twenty-four hundred baud, yeah. and two of them were high-speed, like ninety-six hundred yeah. baud plus. Yeah, and we dial in, and then that's when I would use like X modem or whatever yeah. to download it from my university account into my Amiga. Yeah, for sure. And because the Amigas were multitasking, I could have the terminal running and downloading. And at the same time, I would have like a text editor locally on my computer and mm-hmm. I'd be writing my Pascal code or my, yeah. or whatever. And I would send that up to the university computer and run it there. And I'd be yeah. doing my assignments from home and I'd even be running like mod music in the background. Yeah. yeah. 
so I would have three or four windows open at once. And actually the Amiga was a super computer for that kind of stuff. Because yeah. if I just had DOS machine at a time, I'd have to have, you could only run the terminal and then you'd have to switch out. Well, I guess there were those extenders to do multiple programs to do some form of multitasking, but mm -hmm. anyway, the Amiga was great for it. Yeah. yeah. And, and I watched say about Usenet. I found out about that and, and I searched for like Commodore or something and I found comp.sys.cbm Mm -hmm. And this was the Commodore 64 dedicated, you know, news group. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't believe here's all these people talking about Commodore 64. It's the nineties, but there's still people talking about them. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, that was so cool to, and that's where I finally found what I'd been looking for on the local BBSs, good mm -hmm. programmers and didn't really find yeah. any. Now there were some amazing Commerce 64 programmers is Craig Bruce, who's one of my patrons, mm -hmm. uh, who is making his own operating systems and stuff like a multitasking ACE operating system for the C64, yeah. uh, Steve Judd. Um, anyway, there's just all these brilliant people and that's how I was meeting them Yeah, finally and started meeting people and then going and seeing them in real life. Uh, a few years later, we start going down to Commodore shows down in Chicago, yeah. you and I went together, but we met them on these new online. That was still pre-web. Uh, well, pretty much. No, the web was starting to get going, yeah. what, 93? The web, the web was, yeah, I think the web was around 93 or so. And yeah. the first Chicago trip I did was probably... More like 90. A few years after yeah, that. It was a few years yeah. later the, the, before you, you started going, but yeah. But making your first contact with, with some of but these people. But that's where I started meeting yeah. these people online yeah, for the first for sure. time, yeah. It seemed like as soon as as the World Wide Web kind of got off the ground, that was that was really when things kind of fizzled out for BBSs for me. Uh, that was also around the same time that Doom came out. So mm. there was like real network games going on. You had your, your news groups, you had like this wonderful graphic, um, hypertext place that you could go to for whatever type of information you wanted. That was really kind of the end of BBSs. Yeah. You know, those early nineties there too. Yeah, that, that's right. It was, it was neat still how the, the skills, the stuff we had known mm -hmm. from BBSing in those early yeah. internet days yep. made it very natural for yeah, us to transition to, to transition yeah for sure wow bbs's bbs's robin we've been recording for over two hours now i'm sure we'll trim <laughs> some stuff out yeah some ums and ahs but Epic. yeah this really has been the big one that we were fearing it was going to be <laughs> yeah it, it was just such a an amazing time it really shaped it let us see what the world would become yeah. And here we are today. Yeah, that's good. Living in the future. Yeah, we're living in the future. This might be the last growing up 80s that we record for a little while. We're going to try to do one more mailbag, but this is probably the last um, proper episode that we're going to record probably until the new year sometime. Yeah. So thank you for joining us on Growing Up 80s. And we invite you to share your memories of BBSs with us. Yeah. You can do that on Twitter. I'm at Darren Folds, and Robin is 8-Bit Show and Tell. And we actually do have a 
Growing Up 80s Twitter account at GUP80s. You can find us on the Patreon page and you can leave comments there as well. That's that's a really good place for only, you to leave comments. Only if you are a patron, unfortunately. Oh, but only if you're a patron. Yeah. Sorry, and, guys. Yes. Okay. Well, that's all right. You can do that if you're a patron. Anyway, and we would like to thank our generous patrons who have been supporting us so generously over the last couple of years. So big thanks to our 8-Bit Backers, Ian Calhoun, Jake McKinley, Nathan Dagenhart, and Rob O'Hara. Yay! <laughs> Make sure you check out YouTube, Grown Up 80s, because... Nah, don't worry about that yeah, don't, Yeah. There's nothing there to see. So this has been fun. What a long load of memories we've had tonight. Thank you for suggesting this topic, Robin. It seemed like something we had to do. I'm glad we did. Anyway, for Robin Harbin, I am Darren Folds. Good night. Good night. Beep. Beep. Do, do your 1200 baud whistle. <laughs> that would sound like toothless. <laughs>